right, John, thank you for joining uh, the podcast. I'm super excited to have you. Um, so for the people that don't know you, I'd love for you to kind of introduce yourself, um, you know, just kind of like your basic uh, frat information. And then, well, I want to hear a little bit about you kind of growing up and how you ended up pledging into the Gamma chapter, which I think is very, uh, very interesting. And that's something that I think a lot of people hear about, to be honest. Very good. Um, thanks for having me. I'm really honored to have been invited. Um, John Hernandez, I currently um, am serving as president of Irvine Valley College. It's one of the 116 community colleges in the California Community College System, which by the way is the largest segment of higher education in the nation. I think something like over 2.1 million students overall. And when you think of the rich diversity of California and when you think of the community college system, it truly is a, a first step for a lot of um, students of color, first generation, immigrant students, non-traditional students. Uh, so it really is the gateway for um, providing uh, an education. I've, um, I, I've lived in Orange County almost all of my life. My family is from Cuba. We came to the United States when I was seven years old and we, a lot of times people ask me, you know, how did, how did, what's your Cuban story of <clears throat> coming out to California as opposed to, you know, some other traditional places like Miami. But when, <clears throat> when we left Cuba, my mother had two sisters here in California. Um, <clears throat> so they sponsored us and we moved to California. And so we're West Coast transplants. I often say uh, my my uh, geopolitics was was very uh, much influenced by my upbringing with um, Latinos, Chicanos out here in California, and so in a lot of ways, I I, I see that you know um, the influence of the the culture uh, where you grow up. <clears throat> I I also went to a, a community college, so I'm really proud product of the California Community College system. And um, as a first generation immigrant, I think my story is very similar to that of a lot of immigrants whose families came to this country really looking for better opportunities. And so in so many ways, um, our educational experience, and I hear this so much over the years working particularly with Latino students, that our, our educational experience almost becomes a way to live out the aspirations and dreams of our parents. Um, and so for a lot, a lot of us, being educated, not only is it for economic mobility, but for a lot of us, we're also doing it on behalf of our families. And so I think that is something that really helps me to resonate with students. Um, this is my second uh, community college presidency. I'm, I've actually only been at Irvine Valley College for a little over two months. Um, but before that, I was at another community college in the city of Orange, Santiago Canyon College, where I was there for 15 years, first as a vice president for student services for 11 years, and then I was the president there um, for four years. And so um, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about my, um, how I found my way into education, if, if that is of, of interest. I, I will say that I've been in the field of education for probably over 30 years. I've worked at both two-year community colleges and four-year publics. I worked at Cal State Fullerton for 11 years. I was a dean of students at Cal Poly Pomona. 
um, but really have resonated back to the community college system just because of the mission of the California community college system, the mission of access, the mission of equity, and the mission of uh, student success. Um, I've never, frankly, uh, as a young professional, I never ever aspired to be a college president. Um, I don't even know if it, when I first started in, in this uh, field, if I ever even aspired to be a key uh, administrator. But life has a way of opening doors and creating opportunities that you often begin to, you know, develop a skill set. Um, so you asked me about um, Gamma Chapter. I, I, I was a typical commuter student. I lived at home. I went to my local community college. I went to Fullerton College. I went to my local Cal State which was Cal State Fullerton. Then I started working full-time. And when I did my master's degree in counseling, I went to my next local Cal State, which was Cal State Long Beach. But I was working full-time, going to uh, grad school part-time. And I never felt like I had an opportunity to fully immerse myself in the graduate experience. And so I had this, um, you know, I, I always had this uh, dream of, man, I didn't get to like go out of state as an undergrad. I didn't get to do it as a graduate student. So I was convinced that when I was ready to do my doctorate, I was going to quit my job. I was going to go out of state. And through a process of, you know, selecting and applying out of state, I ended up at University of Maryland College Park. And frankly, that was probably one of the most transformational experiences for me, being enrolled in a doctoral program and really being challenged, um, questioning whether I had what it took to get through, um, particularly the, the research portion of a, of a PhD. Um, but it was at Maryland that I was working as a graduate assistant and my position was coordinator at the time it was called coordinator of Hispanic services for an office for multi-ethnic student education. And so I was being paid to work with Latino student programming. And that's how I came in contact with the Hispanic student union. That's how I became in contact with the hermanos from uh, Lambda Upsilon Lambda. That's how I first frankly was really fully introduced to the Latino Greek system, which now that probably is much um, more established in California, but at that time it was not. So I'm dating myself, but that was, uh, that was in 1995. I was 35 years old when I started my doctoral program. And so through the process of working um, with the Latino students on campus, I really became uh, very close to uh, a lot of the, the brothers in, in uh, Maryland. And so when the um, founders um, decide, graduated, they wanted to start a professional graduate chapter. And uh, when they approached me and said, hey, we, you know, could, do you think you'd be interested? We'd like to talk to you about you know, joining as a, as a, you know, as a graduate um, student. And um, it was something that I, I had to, you know, really think very carefully because obviously I was starting, I was about to start getting into my um, data collection for my dissertation research. Um, but one of the things I really um, admired about the men that I met was the camaraderie, the fellowship, um, the commitment to the community, 
uh, a commitment to really promote education among Latinos. And I truly felt, um, even though I was very close to them, I, I always felt like I wasn't one of them, you know? And so I often tell people when I, when I speak about this, that organizations are only as good as the people in those organizations. And so frankly, for me, the draw to, to the um, fraternity was through the people that I met. And so in the spring of uh, 98, I um, pledged their Alpha Line, uh, their Gamma Epsilon um, graduate chapter. And, you know, there were times where, you know, I, I honestly questioned like, you know, what are you doing? You're 38 years old. And like, are you like reliving some, you know, fantasy from your younger days? Um, but, but it really was a just an incredible experience. And, and um, I think one of the, one of my biggest regrets, um, I know we chatted about this before the podcast, but one of my biggest regrets was that I pledged in spring of 98 and that summer I moved back to California. And so I, I never felt like I was able to fully engage and immerse in, in that community there. Um, but I certainly over the years have just, you know, developed um, admiration and just some really good contacts with Edmanos from the Mid-Atlantic region. Um, they didn't know what to make of me because I was West Coast. So people would ask me, are you Chicano? And I would say, no, I'm, I'm Cubano. And they would say, but you talk like a Chicano. And they'd say, yeah, but I'm from California. Um, and so, you know, I think oftentimes our our cultural identities are mixed both with our cultural heritage of where we're from, as well as the influencers of where we grew up. And it becomes, I think, a much more enriched experience. Um, so anyway, that's just a little bit about, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna let you ask and lead the questions, but you know, just from a, from a general introduction, um, you know, just uh, wanted to say that um, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply um, committed uh, to be an educator, uh, being in a key leadership role of a community college, particularly um, as the CEO and president, is um, a lot of responsibility, but it's also an honor and a privilege. And um, it is something that I'm just truly blessed and thankful that I've been able to, to serve in this capacity. Yeah, no, you're, you're, I think you're making my life easy. You're like just talking about all the things I'm going to ask you anyway. So that's great. Um, so I'm curious. So uh, what age did you pledge OUL? 38. 38. Um, and so I'm curious. So, you know, you're, you're in the pledging process, you're, you know, you're going through everything. Um, you know, how was that for you? Was it just you? Was it other people with you? Uh, tell me a little bit more about that experience. So I had, uh, I had another line brother, um, Earl Francisco Lopez, and he was um, in law school and uh, there in DC. And so it was, it was a balancing act, as I said, between the, the pledging process um, and your graduate studies and everything else. I, I do think that it was interesting because I got to meet so many of the undergrads as a professional who was working on campus. And so I often felt that awkwardness 
of them pledging me and now the roles just being so different. And I realized a lot of it was just a matter of respect, but it was also, um, you know, realizing that, you know, the process is the process. And so how, how do you engage in a way that's still meaningful and, and significant? Um, and, and uh, you know, not be, you know, so, so anyway, it, it was, um, I will tell you that during the pledging process, um, I remember we did a road trip to UPenn. There was a, a, a I think a, um, a, a, a party, a dance, something, some event that was happening at UPenn. Um, and I will never ever um, forget this. It, it was, um, so we, we actually marched into the party and here's this 38 year old old head, you know, marching with these undergrads. Um, but I can, I can tell you that when, when, you know, when we came back to the house and um, that's where I, I think that may have been the first time I formally met Jesse Mejia and some of the brothers that were there that came to, to talk to me. Um, and I appreciated that it was less of a pledge set and more of having a conversation that just really um, uh, stuck with me um, that was a little bit deeper. Um, but 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 I, I could hear people in the background sometimes saying, oh, that's the that's the doctoral student from, you know, from Gamma Epsilon. And it, it was a it was a fascinating it was a, a truly unique experience. My line brother was unable to um, participate in that and I always feel like he missed out on on that experience. So you're like this unicorn that people knew about <laughs> in the region. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you ended up, um, you know, obviously crossing. Did you have a probate? Yes. <laughs> and how was that? Um, it was, you know what, L looking back, it was like, um, it, it was, uh, it was intense, obviously, but it was also leading up to this culmination uh, of, of this experience that um, I was obviously, you know, um, grateful when, when you, when you reach the, you know, the, the end stage. Um, but God, that seems like so long ago now. Uh, actually, it was a, a, a quite quite a number of years ago. Um, I know I know frankly that the because we were like the alpha line. I think it was a matter of, you know, I, we often kidded with them afterwards, like that we were the guinea pigs. They were experimenting with how to treat two graduate professionals, um, and yet to still keep the integrity of the process, and yet at the same time. Um, recognize that you know what what we were bringing in in terms of our own life experiences might be a little different than you would with with an undergrad so yeah I don't know if that answers the question I it, it's just a general response I suppose gotcha so you ended up um, you know crossing another fraternity um, I'm curious like what what your mindset was at that point you know like okay you want to help the community you know you're an hermano um, you know, what did you do after that? So when I left Maryland, I um, came back to Orange County, actually, where I was, uh, was able to secure my first real administrative level position at a community college. 
I started as a director of student services and then a few years later became an associate dean. Um, I went to a um, urban community college that was probably at that time, now it's, it's, it's probably over 80% Latino, but at that time was probably maybe 60 or 70% Latino. And having come from Maryland where the Latino student population, I think at that time was under 5%, it was such a like a paradox and such a shift, right? Where I, in so many ways, I think serving and, and serving the Latino community, particularly with educational opportunities and programs, in some ways, I think I had the added um, benefit that I got to do this as part of my paid job. Right, as opposed to working for a corporate or what have you, and then, you know, ha wanting to be intentional and carve out the space and the time on the weekends to, you know, maybe, um, you know, tutor or to mentor or what have you. And, and certainly I know that over the years, when I think about one of the greatest things that um, I think brings a lot of joy into my life and I feel it's a way of giving back is mentoring young professionals, um, particularly the next generation of educators and, and student affairs professionals. Um, it, it was, it just was easier really to, to be connected to the community when you were already serving that community. Um, I do know that, you know, a few years after that, um, I was able to connect with local um, alumni in the area and we started doing some service weekend projects and things of that nature. Um, but again, I, I felt very fortunate that my, my role and my position allowed me to serve my community in, in multiple ways and that it was really built into what it was that I was doing. And um... You know, with with the pandemic going on, uh, I'm curious how that's, you know, how things have changed for you as a college um, and just in general, like any trends that you're seeing in higher education. That's an excellent question. I think certainly we all made um, a very, very quick transition, often within just a matter of weeks back in March, when we had a shift from, for the most part, face to face to exclusive online and frankly um, it, it, that that required pivot uh, was probably very challenging for some faculty and it was and I know it was extremely challenging for many students. Um, I think the colleges that I, the college I was at and the college that I'm at now really went above and beyond to try to ensure that they made a swift transition for all student support services to be virtual online, to provide laptop loaners, to ensure the food pantries were still continuing to operate, um, to provide Wi-Fi hotspots for students. Um, but I think, frankly, a lot of students are still struggling. And a lot of students are struggling because they, they are now living in this bubble at their home sometimes with multi-generational families. They have siblings who are now, in essence, in the same situation they are, almost basically being homeschooled. They may have limited access to Wi-Fi. Um, one of the studies we did with our students found that the number one concern for our students was they did not have a quiet place to study. Um, 
And so it, it, I think a lot of students are, are falling in between the cracks because not every single student has the right support network at home. And so for a lot of them, their sense of community, their sense of support, um, often even the validation that they were getting was happening on campus. And so now much of that is happening either through a Zoom environment, through um, you know, other platforms to connect, but they're really missing that human interaction. So I, I think it's been, it's been a struggle for many and I'm, I'm deeply worried about those students because I don't know if we lose them if they're gonna come back. Um, however, I do think that we have pushed a lot of educators and faculty in particular to realize how effective they can still be in teaching in an online world. And I suspect that we have yet to truly gauge what the future of higher ed is gonna look like post COVID. But I suspect that we're going to learn to work differently. We're gonna probably learn the impact of cross-training employees across more than one department. I think we're going to, there's always going to be a need for face-to-face. -face. The study we did at my prior institution found that the majority, and we had um, over 1,300 students who responded. It was one of the highest response rates that we have ever done in a student survey. The majority of the respondents said they still prefer face-to-face. -face. Um, so I do not think that this is going to substitute that in-person interaction, but I think we're going to see much more um, online education, we're going to see more virtual support. And in, in some ways, um, it may even transform the kind of demand from business and industry in terms of the kind of skills that we need to teach um, students, particularly in our career technical education programs um, that are part of the community college mission. So it, it, it has not been easy. I know that for spring, uh, the Cal State system just announced they will be primarily virtual online. We're probably gonna announce that next week as well. But we also wanna begin to bring back some limited hands-on activities, meaning that some classes require some hands-on to show demonstration of proficiency with equipment um, we might try to bring back some gradual conditioning for student athletes, not competition, but conditioning. We may bring back some, um, so our, our sister college has a large health science program, nursing, and they have some career technical ed programs where they are currently spending some time on campus. So I know that we're starting to make some gradual and I realize it's very different in every state. California has been much more cautious and there are certain guidelines that are dependent on what's happening in your local region um, in terms of like infection rates, hospitalization rates, and those kinds of things. So um, it has certainly, I think, turned our world upside down in some ways. And yet I, I'd like to hope that some good will come out of it, that we can look back and, um, and, and think of how it is that we need to transform ourselves as a result of those experiences. Yeah, and we have a lot of uh, hermanos that are interested in higher ed, um, that are in higher ed or are looking to get into higher ed. Is there any uh, feedback, you know, things maybe you wish you would have known as you were going into higher ed? Um, you know, I think that that's something that they would probably love to hear because I've heard that, you know, 
from some of our Facebook groups and things like that? You know, it's interesting because I started um, my career in what, what we would call uh, student affairs or student services. And unlike, you know, engineering, accounting, or some other, you know, very traditional, like, you know, no one said to me, oh, yeah, there's a world of careers in student affairs, and there are graduate preparation programs and student development student affairs programs. Um, there are professional associations around this. There's a lot of, there's a wealth of literature and theories. So I think I stumbled my way into going into education, and I know that's been the experience for many, um, and yet I hope that it becomes a, a career option that people begin to think about. When I was an undergrad, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew that I sucked at math and science, but I loved working with people. I loved the social sciences. And so frankly, for me, it was a, a, a matter of trial and error. I actually was very fortunate that at my community college, there was a dean who really took interest in me. And I, I just, I will also just say that I've been very blessed over the years that at every level, whether it was my undergrad, my master's and my doctorate, I always had mentors and, and, and faculty who took interest in me. Um, and, I, and, and I think that's one of the reasons I, I'm so committed to, you know, giving back to others because I was such a, um, it was such an impactful um, thing for me. But, you know, she actually encouraged me to do volunteer work. So at some point, I thought I wanted to be a probation officer, right? I volunteered in, in a juvenile hall. I was teaching uh, English as a second language to, um, to juveniles. And I did that for over a year and a half. And I was like, nope, I don't want to do this for a living. I don't want to work within, you know, uh, uh, either a, a, a California prison system or juvenile hall. Then I thought, what about social work? So I was a sociology major. I was taking a class in family violence and I volunteered with a social service agency working with children who had been in some level of an abusive situation. So while the parents were going to court mandated classes, we worked with the children. That was deeply um, a moving experience, but I also thought this is not what I want to do. Ironically, as an undergrad, I had been hired as a student ambassador by a program called EOPS, which is at all the community colleges and EOP at the four-year schools, which is for first-generation low-income um, underserved um, students. I had been a student ambassador going to high schools, talking to high school students about coming to college. And I realized probably three years into my undergrad, <laughs> that I love that work. And it was almost like I realized that selling education and presenting education to students who came from similar backgrounds as, as I was something that I became very passionate about. And so that was my first entry into the world of student services and wanting to pursue a master's in counseling. Um, so when you think about education, there's obviously, um, you know, uh, whether someone wants to go the scholarly route, which is teaching, or they want to go the practitioner route, 
which is being a service provider, working in a student life, uh, cultural centers, uh, career services, uh, housing. Um, and then within that, there eventually are many um, branches that can lead off to administration. So I think at some point, we all go through a process of trying to determine what is it that brings meaning in our life? What is it that gives us a sense of purpose? And what am I most passionate about? And so I think for, for a lot of um, you know, individuals, I, I hope that there, I think for a lot of us, the undergrad years are kind of like the time period where we begin to ask those questions. Um, sometimes we do it in a more intentional way, um, but I do feel that um, oftentimes, you know, we're not even certain what ex is exactly we want to do and that's okay. I know I was constantly asked, what are you gonna do with a degree in sociology? And I would always say, I don't know. Um, and I always knew that I was probably going to have to do a master's degree because I figured that I'm, I was going to have to develop some kind of specialization in something. Um, but certainly education, when you look at, I'm just going to speak from the perspective of the California Community College System. I just said it is the largest segment of higher ed in, in the nation. It has the largest number of students of color, for example. Yet, the faculty diversity um, at all of our colleges does not even come close to reflecting the demographics of our students. So do we need more faculty in traditional disciplines that are representative of the students that we serve? Absolutely. And that is a big push that is happening and probably happening not just in California, but in many other states. So I would say that education is a noble profession, whether it's teaching and making an impact in the lives of young people in the classroom or providing support, critical services outside of the classroom or engaging with students to make sure that their um, learning educational experiences is meaningful, particularly with the out of class uh, involvement. And so there's just a lot of career options that I would hope people do um, take advantage of. And I know there's a lot of hermanos who are in education. Um, I've talked to several of them who have talked about wanting to do like either, you know, podcasts or doing some webinars or just really trying to be more visible so that others who are maybe undergrads who are starting to think about this or maybe never thought about it. Um, every single person I've talked to that was in student affairs and when, when I've, without exception, when I've asked them, what was it that brought you into this profession? It was usually somebody that made an impact while they were an undergrad. It might've been their RA, their resident director. It might've been their dean of students. It might've been their fraternity sorority advisor. It may have been the student life person. Um, it may have been somebody in career services. So, so for many of us, it's a way to give back to our community. And, and I, I can't think of a, uh, frankly, I, I always feel that working on a college campus keeps you young, keeps you connected, um, and, it, and it truly is a meaningful profession. So I do hope that, again, whether it's in the, in the classroom or providing the critical core support outside of the classroom, that people will keep education certainly as a as an alternative and as an option yeah and john um uh, one of the things too that i i want this podcast to be is also to like 
uh, not only highlight the amazing work that hermanos are doing, but also even be able to help you. So is there anything that you're looking for, maybe people to connect with um, that, you know, would be valuable for you to you know, have those conversations with? Well, I think um, one of the things I, I've, about, well, let me just say that being involved in professional organizations around the work that we each do, being involved, like for example, in California, there's a group of um, Latino educators that just started an organization called Colegas. Um, I feel that oftentimes people are either looking for some level of mentoring or they're looking to be part of a network that can better connect them to a community of, of practitioners, meaning a, a community of people who are doing this work. And so I guess what I would say is that oftentimes I'm approached, like I have a colleague who's a professor at Michigan State, who a year ago said, I've got a graduate student finishing his master's from California is a product of the community college in California, wants to work in the California community college, um, are you willing to mentor and connect with him? Um, I have yet to say no to those experiences. Um, oftentimes though, it is a lot of work uh, in terms of just the investment of time and energy. And so I think really what I would hope is that, that um, hermanos who are professionals, regardless of what that profession is, that, that they would seriously think about how they get connected to professional associations, whether they happen to be Latino themed or not, um, in terms of beginning to, to really bring that awareness to others about the line of work that they do. And we all know the networking that we do within our, our own organization, but I think sometimes we need to step out of that and also be able to mentor and connect others who maybe have no affiliation to the fraternity, but who are really looking for that kind of guidance and direction. Super helpful. And I, I think as we get older and go through our careers, I always try to think about, yes, I want a mentor, but what can I do to put myself in a situation where it's not a lot of work on your end and I've done a lot of my homework, right. um, where for you to be able to help me, it's not necessarily like a lot of time commitment. Maybe it's a little bit of advice here and there, um, right. but sometimes that's all you really need. I don't need, need you to talk to me for hours on end. Sometimes right. it's those text conversations. Maybe it's that one or two emails, but that's kind of it. So um, you being a president, you have, I know, like you mentioned, a lot of people reaching out. I just wanted to figure out what's the best way to, you know, if you want to have a mentor, what's the best way to, to kind of go about that? I think there's two ways. One is don't be afraid to ask. Um, I think oftentimes we, we feel a little intimidated reaching out, particularly if it's somebody you don't know. Um, the other is use your own network to have someone open the door and introduce you to someone else. I do that all the time. Um, this person that I was just referencing earlier, he now has graduated. He's in California. This is probably one of the worst times to be looking for employment with the economy being what it is. But I am hoping to introduce him to others. And so I think all of us are bridge builders in so many ways. And so one way again is to approach, but the other is to ask someone within your network 
to could you provide an introduction? And it's not that you're asking necessarily often, I always tell folks, look, it's not, it's not that you're asking people for a job. You just want to get on somebody's radar. Because once you're on somebody's radar, then they've got you in mind um, and they understand what it is that you're looking for. And if they happen to have some opportunities, they're going to make that introduction. Oftentimes when um, I've, I've been advising graduate students and they're getting close to graduating, uh, we say, have you been reaching out to the people in your network? Like, have you been maybe once a semester reached out to give them an update to let them know what are you up to, what are you doing? You're doing an internship, you're interested in this. You've got to do that because by the time you get ready to start the job search, you know, you don't want to all of a sudden two years later knock on somebody's door who you haven't even had any level of contact in two years and say, oh, by the way, I'm looking for a job. Can you help me? And then the other thing I always tell people who are a little bit shy, um, like, wow, that feels uncomfortable. I always say, you know what? Get over it. Because if, if, yeah, sometimes it is a little uncomfortable, but somebody else is going to do it. And then when that door and opportunity presents himself, you're going to connect and introduce people based on who's on your radar, not on who you may not know. So I think sometimes it's just a matter of taking advantage of the opportunities that are presented. I know in, in graduate um, school or in undergrad, there are a lot of networking opportunities, networking events, career services. Um, it, it's just, a, it's just a professional organizations, um, you know, internship opportunities. I just think people need to be intentional about, you know, making sure that they are in some ways connecting with multiple like circles um, so that, you know, they're able to really walk in and out of those with a little more confidence. Yeah. And, and the reason why I asked this, John, is because um, a lot of people will look at you and say, you made it. You're president of, of a college. Um, but I've had a lot of my mentors say, you know, I've, I'm CEO, I'm this and that. However, I'm already thinking about the next person that should, you know, be taking my job, who should be person of color, Latino. And like, I, I need to find those people. And so I'm already here, but I'm already thinking like, I'm going to go eventually. Um, there's people that I work with that are retiring that we need to fill these seats with people that look like us. Absolutely. That's called su succession planning. Um, and, and we do it all the time. Um, that's why I think it's so important for me, at least in, in, in my educational circles, to really uh, cultivate the pipeline of the next generation of, of educators, student affairs professionals, um, future administrators, uh, future scholars, because um, we've got to have that pipeline moving and have that pipeline be vibrant and have that pipeline and that takes time and 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 so i i do think that that is something that a lot of us think about all the time um is okay we're we, we've got a limited number of years to make an impact wherever it is we've been called to serve but what happens when i'm gone and what you know how do you assure that that level of commitment and synergy is going to continue um, and John, another thing that I, I wanted to have you talk about is, um, you know, for someone who is, uh, you know, interested in LUL, um, someone maybe who is in graduate school or maybe older, 
uh, or even just a, a freshman or a transfer student, you know, who's coming in and they only have like a year or two left and they're like, should I even pledge an organization? Why should I do LUL? Um, you know, I only have a couple years left. I'm curious, like, what would your, 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 um, your answer to that be? I particularly resonate when you said with transfer students, because transfer students often are very focused. Um, many times they're working. Uh, they don't have a whole lot of time. <laughs> and so they're, they're very intentional. They're very focused and um, sometimes pursuing an opportunity um, like a fraternity, like LUL is a luxury for many people um, because they may just not be able to, um, you know, really add it to the mix of their commitments and responsibilities. I, I, I guess what I would say is that um, be open to life experiences that might broaden your perspective, might broaden your networking, and that certainly could introduce you to um, a set of opportunities and a commitment level that maybe you never even entertained, right? And really that's, that's primarily about having an open mind. And, um, you know, I, I do think, and I, and I don't know, I, I, I frankly, when I went, when I went back East um, and I had worked on a college campus for like, you know, 11 years before I, I went to my doctoral program, um, my view of fraternity sororities were traditional fraternities and sororities. So I already had like a very skewed perspective that was, if, if my first year in my graduate program, you had said, hey, there's a, you know, there's a graduate uh, Latino fraternity, would you be interested? I probably would have been closed off. Which is why, going back to my statement earlier that, that you get to know an organization through the people in that organization. And that's why I think it's so critical for members of those organizations to put themselves out there in a, in a space where they can really interact with others because others may not come into our space because they either won't understand or won't have the time. But when we go into multiple spaces where they are, I think that that can sometimes be more effective. Agreed. Um, yeah, John, uh, you know, a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast are going to be hermanos. Uh, if people want to connect with you or it, what's a good way for them to uh, reach out, hopefully they listen to the whole thing and, and, and they've done what you've said and have a connections and have all these introductions and can right. come to the table with some, with just a lot of value. Um, but if, is there any way that uh, is best to connect with you or what do you recommend? I would say my work email is probably the best um, way to reach out. It's pretty simple. It's first last name, John Hernandez at ivc.edu. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And is there any uh, last kind of words or thoughts that you would like to um, uh, leave hermanos with as, as, uh, as they're listening to this podcast on the way to work, coming back at home? So one of the things I, I, I didn't quite, I alluded to it was, I really did not imagine I was going to go into administrative career. I always thought I want to be working with the students on the front line. I want to be with the students, you know. Um, it wasn't until I had the opportunity to be an assistant dean in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Cal State Fullerton. 
that I even began to realize the impact I could make in administration. And it was in that role that I realized that when I had a place at the table and I had a voice at the table, I realized the impact that could be made beyond the front lines, but like at the 30,000 foot level where you really impact an institutional change as opposed to maybe, you know, 30 students or what have you. So I say that because there was a time in my young professional career that I said I would never want to go into administration. I don't want to deal with the politics. I don't want to deal with the bureaucracy. And I think a lot of times we make career decisions based on what we don't know, as opposed to what we do know. And unless I had had a seat at that table, I probably would have never understood the impact that that collectively this group of administrators could make on policy development, on resource allocation, on prioritization of where we put our focus. And so um, there have been a couple times in my career where I thought I wanted to do this. And I was so focused on this that I didn't even realize what was over here. And so I guess really my, my, my closing advice is to be open to the things you don't know because you haven't been introduced, to be open to the things you haven't necessarily thought about or entertained because oftentimes those are missed opportunities and to be willing to um, engage in opportunities that sometimes comes our way that are not even planned, but that just happen in many instances, um, you know, just out of a random uh, encounter. Because I think that is how we oftentimes truly take advantage of the, um, the things that come our way that, again, may not have been fully thought out in your scheme of things and may not have been fully planned in your like 10 year, you know, life goal commitment. Um, and again, to take advantage of the opportunities to learn from others. Awesome, thanks, John, that was super uh, helpful. Thank you for being on the podcast. You're one of our early ones um, and uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see what, how many bros reach out or how many people you impact. I'm, I'm excited. Thank you. No, thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Um, I look forward. I know you're in the LA area, so I look forward to staying connected with you. I've seen a city of gold. I've seen a future untold. I've seen a people in need. I've seen their hopes and their dreams. But we won't falter in fear. We won't cry, we won't shout. We must rise for our peers. And never waver in doubt. Because we are La Unidad Latina. The land is there, will hold you down. We are